0: sound good? Everybody give me like a woo if you're still with me. Wow, nice. Love it. There's a, a really strong contingent over here of people that are with me, and everybody else is like, just sit down and start preaching. Well, you're in luck because I'm about to start doing that right now. But Jesus, before I do that, I pray that anything I say this morning would be from you, that it wouldn't be drummed up within my heart or my soul, but God, it would be straight from you from the throne room of heaven, and that, Lord, whatever I say, I, I pray that it would not just be a, a wishy-washy, happy-to-be-here Sunday morning message, but, Father, I pray that it would challenge us. I know that it's challenging me as I've been working on it and preparing it, and so, Lord, I pray that it would help us to uh, become a little bit more like you this morning, and that as we go from here later this morning into the rest of our weeks, God, I pray that we would be uh, remembering the words and the, the message and the lessons that you want us to take from this word this morning. So we love you, Jesus. I surrender myself to you. I also pray in one more blessing over Pastor Tom and his family, because if they're blessed, God, I believe it'll trickle down to the rest of us. So thank you. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Well, hey, we live in a culture that is obsessed with greatness. Greatness. Everybody is talking about greatness. We think about greatness. We sing about greatness. We see greatness everywhere we go. And I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard this phenomenon before or this uh, debate that's happened before, but it's the GOAT debate. And no, it is not a debate about whether the pygmy goat is better than the billy goat. In fact, it has nothing to do with goats at all. But the GOAT debate is an acronym. Does anybody know what the GOAT debate acronym is? Yell it out. Greatest of all time. If you're like, how did they get GOAT from that? Well, look at the first letter in all those words. Greatest, G of O, all A, time. GOAT. And so there's these debates that are happening about who is the greatest or what is the greatest. And oftentimes... I don't know if I've ever mentioned this, but I'm a little bit of a sports fan, so it's often in like sports discussions. So who is the goat of sports? Like is it is it LeBron or is it Jordan? Somebody says Jordan, okay. I didn't mean to divide everybody so early on. For some of the hockey fans of the room, is it Gretzky? Is it Lemieux? Like there's you could kind of you could kind of go both ways. What about the music lovers in the room? Is it is it Beatles or is it stones? Maybe if you're a little bit younger, is it Taylor Swift, is it Beyonce? I'm not gonna lie, I saw the Eras Tour movie a couple of weeks ago, the Taylor Swift concert. It's pretty crazy. What about apples to oranges? Some some people who are like, you haven't had a healthy food goat debate yet. Well, here it is, apples or oranges? What's better? Apples, oranges? Oranges would be the goat if they didn't have all those like hairy, whatever those things are. They have to peel off every single piece. That's enough for me to say. I think apples wins. Because you can just bite into an apple, and you're good to go. You don't have to. Anyways, what about uh, TV lovers? Friends? Seinfeld? Maybe The Office? I don't think there's any good modern shows, if I'm being honest. So no offense. I'm kind of sticking with ones that are a little bit older. But uh, Cats or Dogs? Greatest pet of all time? You're like, what about snakes and lizards? They're pets too. I'm not throwing those in there. Cats or Dogs? Uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, any strong opinions about the greatest sci-fi series of all time? If you say Star Trek, you're wrong, I'm sorry, it's obviously Star Wars. Uh, Coke or Pepsi? Greatest soft drink of all time? Coke, yes, thank you everybody. Uh, And now, we're in South Dakota, so I figure I should throw this one in. Uh, John Deere, or I think, is it Case or Cass? You can tell how much I know. John Deere, we've got some votes for John Deere. I think it is case, right? Tractor people, yes. Farm, agriculture, lovers, yes. All right. So yeah, we, we love discussing the greatest of all time. We love discussing greatness. And, and I think it's because as a culture and even as individuals, we have a, a drive to see or to witness, maybe even to, to experience or, or define what greatness is. Now, if we're all honest with ourselves— if we really dug deep down into the depths of our souls, I think we would all say, you know what? I want to be great. You know, I want others to see in me greatness. I, I want to do great things, and, and I, wanna, I want to be great. Some of us maybe would desire that a little bit more than others. Maybe some of the introverts in the room are like, I don't even want want people to say hi to me. Like, I don't necessarily want greatness. I just want to kind of hide in the background, and some of the extroverts are like, man, I just want to be so great, and but everybody wants to be great to an extent, and truthfully, I don't think this desire within us is wrong. I think God actually put that within each and every one of us, but what I do believe is that God is inviting us towards and into greatness, not for our own sake, not for our own benefit or for our own glory or for others to recognize or notice us, but I actually think that God is inviting us into a greatness that needs to be channeled and understood in the appropriate context that is, we are called to greatness because of who we are connected to. We are called to a greatness because of who we are in relationship to, who we are linked to, and that is God. That we are called to be great we are called into greatness because God is actually calling us to himself and to the mission that Jesus began on this earth over 2,000 years ago. And so we, we, in culture, when we have these greatest of all time debates, it's, it's the, who's the best amongst humanity? Who's, who's the best amongst the group? But really when God is inviting you to be the greatest of all time, God is simply just inviting you to him, who is the ultimate greatest of all time because... He created time. (laughs) He created all things. So we're talking about greatness. Say greatness. Oh, you can do better. Come on. I want you to be with me this morning. Can we we get a big greatness? Awesome. We need to make sure that we understand the context of greatness that we're talking about this morning. And so what we are going to be doing over the course of the next 80 to 90 minutes, just joking. But we're going to be looking at some of the characteristics of a great life that God is inviting us into. Some of the characteristics of a great life that God is inviting us into. And we're going to be looking specifically at the life of a guy named Nehemiah. And over the last couple weeks, I've read through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and In our Bibles, they're two separate books, but they actually were written originally as one unified work by one author. And just for our purposes, as we put together the Bible the way we did, we split them up into two different books. But really, if you read Ezra all the way through to Nehemiah, it's simply one work that we've separated for whatever reason. But in the life of Nehemiah, we come face to face with this idea of greatness that we're talking about this morning. So I want to start out. Reading Nehemiah six verse one to four, and then we're going to jump into some of the characteristics of what a great life really looks like. So it says this: Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained. So we're kind of we're we're partway through the story here, the the building project that we're going to talk about in a minute. Everything has been finished. Uh, but he says, we had not yet set up the doors in the gates. That's what Nehemiah says. So Samballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. And in, immediately in that moment, Nehemiah was thinking, oh no. <laughs> I just made myself laugh with a really bad joke. But I realized they were plotting to harm me, so I replied by sending this message to them. And this is, this is the crux of what we're talking about this morning. He says, I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. See, Nehemiah, we're going to be going through his story a little bit, but he realizes that he is in the middle of a great work. He's overseeing the walls around the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt and he's been unwavering and unwilling to allow himself to get distracted. See, the the Israelites had been exiles in the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire kind of came and overtook the Babylonian Empire. And God moves on the hearts of three different Persian kings, rulers over these vast empires. And God moves on their hearts to allow these exiled Jews who've been brought to Babylon, who are now in the Persian Empire, to slowly but surely be sent back to their promised land, to their ancestral homelands, which is Jerusalem. And so the first wave, it kind of happens at three waves. The first wave was led by a guy named Zerubbabel. Can you say Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel, which is a great, fantastic, strong name, I believe. So he leads the first wave of these exiled Jews that are being sent back to Jerusalem around 538 B.C. Then there was another guy, Ezra, who was another prophet. He leads another wave of exiles back in 458 B.C. And then we get to Nehemiah, who he eventually leads a group of exiles back to Jerusalem in 445 B.C. So at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, if you want to go back and read it this week, you can. But at the beginning of the book, it opens, and, and Nehemiah has actually never even set foot in Jerusalem because he's, he's grown up in exile. He's, he, we read that he is serving in the king's courts, but growing up as somebody who would have been raised in the, the Israelite and the Jewish tradition, he would have understood the importance of Jerusalem and the promised land, even though he wasn't even living there at the time. But he would have known about these groups who had been slowly but surely sent back by the the kings of the empire. And so we read that he kind of bumps into his brother at this place called the fortress of Susa. And he asks his brother, How are the Jews who've returned to Jerusalem doing? And the report he gets is not good. Things are no bueno for those that have returned to Jerusalem, and they're in trouble. The wall that surrounded the city it was torn down and the gates were all burned and this is how Nehemiah responds Nehemiah 1 verse 4 He says when I heard this I sat down and wept In fact for days I mourned fasted and prayed to the God of heaven Here's the first characteristic of what living a great life looks like that we're talking about this morning The seed of greatness is dissatisfaction the seed of greatness is dissatisfaction. Nehemiah's response here is pretty important for us to recognize and to take note of because he's just heard about this situation in Jerusalem. He's heard about how things are not good. The walls aren't, aren't uh, built up. They've been torn down. There's fire everywhere. Fire burning things down is generally not good. And so there's a dissatisfaction that's birthed within his heart. And rather than rushing off and immediately trying to fix the situation, immediately trying to to resolve everything that is not right, he sits down, he begins to weep, mourn, fast, and pray. And see, it kind of feels like a bit of an interesting response to something that this Nehemiah guy has probably never even laid eyes on. But at the time of this story, at the time of of the the Jews in in the book of Nehemiah, city walls and gates were so important. There was one study Bible that I was reading this week, and it suggested that city walls in that time are kind of like what we view electricity or like a police force today. It's, It's things that kind of, the city needs those things to operate. Back at that time, walls provided safety from enemy cities and enemy nations and enemy forces to come in and wreak havoc. Walls were were symbols of strength, and they were symbols of peace amongst the people. And and if those walls were not there, it signified that trouble was probably along the way. So Nehemiah is grieved. He's dissatisfied. He's he's anguished about the state of the city of Jerusalem. And so for days, he's weeping, fasting, mourning, praying. I'm kind of pointing the finger at myself when I ask this question, but when's the last time that you spent days... Weeping, mourning, fasting, praying. Maybe some of you are like, yeah, that was me this week. But if you're like me, it's probably been a while. I can honestly say I have not had a stretch in a while where I've spent days just saying, God, there's this this dissatisfaction about this situation and going to God with it. Our three-year-old, Micaiah, he started to um, get dressed on his own recently. And it's a pretty big step for him. But there was a, a moment this week where he was trying to get a shirt over his head and he couldn't figure it out. And he actually kind of got himself, I don't know how, but he got himself all twisted up and, and kind of got himself stuck to the place where he couldn't move his arms and he couldn't get his arms through to where the arms were supposed to be. And he started crying and, and yelling and he said, I can't do it. And, and you know how a three-year-old gets crying, you know, I can't do it and started stamping his feet. And I was like, dude, dude, buddy, 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 like just let's, let's take a minute. And so I said, hey, stop, take a deep breath, c- gather your thoughts, and then just go slowly. And sure enough, he stopped, he kind of calmed himself down, and, and he was able to get himself unstuck, and eventually got his shirt on properly we can find ourselves sometimes in these moments of dissatisfaction and we can feel like the only response is we're stuck. We can, we can get so caught up and so twisted up and so grieved and anguished that we feel like the only response is just to say, I can't do anything. I can't do it. I can't go on. It can feel like a landing zone where we've just been plopped down into this dissatisfying situation, and we think there's no other way, but this is where I'm at. It's a landing zone. But the truth is we serve a God who views these challenging, these difficult, these uncomfortable circumstances. He doesn't view those as a landing pad. He actually views them as a launching zone. I would argue that God sometimes even... Places us into these moments of dissatisfaction because he wants to lead us. He wants to get us to a place where we're so frustrated about what we're experiencing that we actually decide that it's time to take steps and to move out. But I I believe that when we view them as a landing zone, that that's what it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That we get stuck in dissatisfaction and we don't take any steps from it. But if we could shift our perspective, like Nehemiah does, as we'll see in a few moments, it's actually a launching pad. This, this dissatisfaction, this seed that's been planted in my heart, it's actually going to propel me to something. It's going to propel me towards something great. Not because I know all the answers and I can fix all the problems that I'm facing, but because when I l- fix my eyes on Jesus, he's the one that's a- able to lead me out of this dissatisfaction, this seed of dissatisfaction that's been planted, and he can actually point me in the direction of something better, something greater. So Nehemiah, he's dissatisfied. He's bothered. And so he begins to pray. And he records his prayer, fortunately for us. He says this. This is Nehemiah 1, verses 8 to 11. He says, please remember, speaking to God, what you told your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. And and take note that he's living as an exile. The the people have been unfaithful. The, The Israelites have wandered away, drifted away from what God has called them towards, and they have found themselves in exile. What Nehemiah is praying. But he goes on, he, he says, but if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power, Nehemiah says, by your great power and strong hands are your servant, are your servants, O Lord. Please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. So Nehemiah, he's reminding God of God's own covenant that he gave to the Israelites. What, what he agreed, what he promised to the Israelites in the Torah, in the books of the law. What we consider Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And, and a lot of what Nehemiah is praying here are actually direct quotes from some of those passages in those books. But Nehemiah realizes that the situation the Israelites in Jerusalem are facing is not to be blamed on God. In fact, their exile and the state of the city of Jerusalem, the walls, they're in such disarray because the people of God have not adhered to their end of the covenant with God. But Nehemiah continues because there's dissatisfaction in his heart and he's not willing to stay there, so he continues praying. He says, please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. Then he says, in those days, I was the king's cupbearer. You know, in verse 11, we can tell he wants to do something. We can tell that he's at a place of dissatisfaction, that he says, there's, there's something that I need to do beyond this. Because he says, please make the king favorable to me. And when we first read that line, we're kind of like, what, that, that doesn't make sense. But his very next line, in those days, I was the king's cupbearer. What does the seed of dissatisfaction in your life this morning look like? Has it caused you to get stuck? Have you given up? Have you thrown in the towel and say, I can't? Can't do it? Hopefully this morning, as we keep going, you're going to be able to recognize that the dissatisfaction of where you find yourself right now, it's not the end of the story. It's not the closing chapter. It's not the conclusion. So let's keep going. What happens when we recognize the seeds of dissatisfaction? Everybody's good? You still with me? Okay, I got an amen. I'll take that. The next thing we see from Nehemiah's life and his example is that the germination of greatness is boldness that leads to action. Again, agricultural, South Dakota, hopefully some of you know what germination means, but if you don't, let me give you some synonyms. Uh, Formation. Um, launching. Where have we talked about launching? Oh yeah, just a couple minutes ago. So, so another way of saying this is the germination of greatness or the launching or the formation of greatness is boldness that leads to action. See, Nehemiah has encountered the, this dissatisfaction within him. He's gone to God. He sat in that tension, that uncomfortableness, but then he steps out boldly. He's the cupbearer. He works and interacts in a prominent place of influence within the empire. And we know that he's carrying this grief of what's happened in Jerusalem because this is what it says in Nehemiah 2, verses 1 to 5. I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. Nehemiah must have just been like one of the coolest guys around, never having been sad before in the king's presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. (laughs) Nehemiah says, then I was terrified because the king asked you a pretty pointed question, but I replied long live the king How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire The king asked, well, how can I help? Isn't that crazy? How can I help the king says? With the prayer To the god in heaven, I replied So even in this moment, Nehemiah realizes, hey I can't just go into this on my own. I, I, need, I need the guidance of God. So, with a prayer to the God in heaven, I replied, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Nehemiah is taking a huge risk here. In that culture, to show any sort of sadness or grief before the king was dangerous. We see a similar situation in the book of Esther, right? Where unless you were presented the scepter of approval to say, okay, you know, I didn't call you here, but I will allow you to enter my presence. You know, we, we see that it didn't take much for a king to give the order for somebody to be executed. But Nehemiah has such a disturbance in his soul, he's, he surrendered it to God. He believes that there's a purpose and a call in his life to address it. And he takes a bold step of action by asking this request. Now, Nehemiah doesn't just ask for the bare minimum. Like, Nehemiah goes all out asking the king for everything that he needs to oversee this project that he feels called to in his heart. He asks for resources. He asks for royal protection. uh, And the king, crazy enough, he's like, sure. And then he says, I'm actually going to send an army with you and I'm going to send you letters and decrees that as you pass through all of the different regions that you need to go through to get back to Jerusalem. And then you can present these letters and you'll have this army that's protecting you and, and you'll have safe passage. And it's crazy. Why, why does the king agree to all this? Well, we see that the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me, Nehemiah says. Nehemiah says. The king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. See, this request would be like our students going to their teachers tomorrow and saying, hey, teacher or principal, I would like moving forward every Monday and every Friday to simply be extended weekends. And I also would like a McDonald's fully functioning, put into our cafeteria, and I want it to be free. I want that to be available every single day. And the teachers and the principals looking at our students and being like, yeah, okay. How about I also put a Chipotle? And so you have a little bit of variety. Or that would be like you going to your job, or your boss tomorrow, your manager, and you'd be like, hey, um, I would like a 20% raise, and I would like uh, four extra weeks of vacation. And they'd be like, yes, I see you, I hear you. I'm actually going to counter with 75% raise and eight months vacation. And you'd be like, okay, sure, I'll, I guess if that's what you're offering, I will take it. See, this, this request that Nehemiah is going to the king with is not just a little request. Like, we read it in our Bibles, and we think, oh, that's kind of cool. But this is a huge deal and the fact that the king says, yes, and also let me give you more. See, the gracious hand of God is on Nehemiah because he is called to something great. And it's not something great for Nehemiah's own sake, but it's something great for the kingdom of heaven. It's something great for the people of God. It's something great for the body of believers. And so the hand of God is on him. And because of that, he's given so much more than he's asked for. Now, I'm not suggesting students that you go to your schools tomorrow and you try out what I just talked about, and I'm not suggesting that when you go to work tomorrow, you try that with your bosses. But what I am saying is this, is that Nehemiah takes a bold step and he asks for a lot because he knows that the end result is not up to him. There's dissatisfaction in his whole, in his soul. He feels like God has placed it there. And so he's gone to the Lord humbly. He's surrendered. He's prayed about it. And he's put into practice what St. Augustine wrote many years ago. He wrote this pray as though everything depended on God, but work as though everything depended on you. You know, we can respond to dissatisfaction sometimes with simply working as hard as we can and striving and striving and striving and going, going, going and never stopping. and, And we try to fix what's wrong and we try to do everything on our own strength to overcome this dissatisfaction. Maybe you go the complete opposite way and you kind of slip into apathy and you kind of pretend to try or try to pretend that it's not there. You just hope that if you ignore it for long enough, it'll go away. You're like, that's not really a response. Well, no response is a response. So, yeah, it is. Or we can do what Nehemiah demonstrates we can go to God. We can ask Him, God, what, what do you want me to do about this? And then we can wait patiently in His presence. And sometimes you'll wait five minutes and he'll give you the next bold step to take. Maybe you'll wait five years. Maybe you'll wait 50 years. I don't really have a great answer as to why sometimes the dissatisfaction in our soul is resolved quickly rather than not. I don't really know why God operates that way, but what I do know is this, is that if we desire to live in the greatness and the fullness of what God has in store for us, you'll find yourself bumping up against moments of dissatisfaction, and if you decide that... You know, I'm going to prepare and I'm going to uh, weep and I'm going to pray and I'm going to mourn and I'm going to fast now in, w- before I face those moments and then when I get to those moments, I'm going to respond that way too because if you do that, then you'll be ready and God will equip you to take the steps of boldness in those moments that can lead to great things, great things that are beyond anything of your capability or my capability. I read this a couple of weeks ago to open a service, but it was from a study Bible as well. I think the same idea applies here. It says this, heroic spiritual lives are built by stacking days of obedience, one on top of the other. Like a brick, each obedient act is small in itself, but in time those acts will pile up, and a huge wall of strong character will be built, a great defense against temptation. We should strive for consistent obedience each day sometimes heroic and great spiritual lives, is just faithful obedience despite mounting dissatisfaction. And even when the steps of boldness maybe feel small or insignificant, we continue to walk towards Jesus. Because as we walk towards Jesus, and as we walk with Jesus, the craziest thing happens, and it's that Jesus actually starts walking towards us. James 4 verse 8. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. And oftentimes we stop there, because we're like, yes, hallelujah, praise the Lord, that's amazing. I'm going to hold on to that truth. But we don't actually read the next part of the verse, which says this. Wash your hands, you sinners. (laughs) Kind of like, yes, this, yeah, anyways, I think it's funny, maybe nobody else does. Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. I think we actually need to go back a few verses earlier in chapter 4, where we read this, verses 2 to 3. James writes, You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Now, before you go home and you say, man, Thaddeus is like super prosperity gospel and he's name it and claim it and he's saying if I pray it, then God's going to make it happen. That's not what I'm saying. Because we know that's not how this life, we know that's not how discipleship operates. But you come up against the dissatisfaction and maybe it's just me, maybe you can relate, but you grumble and you moan and, and complain or I grumble and I moan and I complain. And I pray things like, God, why is this happening to me? And unfortunately, that's sometimes the only thing I pray, or the only thing you pray. We're asking the wrong questions. If we want to live a life of greatness, rather than just asking, God, why is this happening to me? We need to ask, God, how can this make me more like you? Or, Heavenly Father, what are you trying to teach me right now? Or, Lord of the universe, what would you have me do in this season of dissatisfaction? What's the first step, God? Again, we're not talking about greatness for our own sakes, but a great life in which we're molded and shaped into the image of God. And in that process, the legacy and the impact of your life and my life on the lives of people around us, on the generations that are going to come after us. That's the kind of greatness we're talking about, the legacies that you are being led to establish. The germination, the formation, the launching pad of greatness is boldness that leads to action, and often it's boldness in the things that we're asking God Now, the reality of great works and great lives is that they don't operate on a constant up and to the right trajectory, or for your sake, I guess, up and to the right, right? I'm pointing to your right. This is my right, so, but for you, as you're looking, greatness doesn't happen on a linear path of everything's perfect, everything's awesome. If you saw the Lego movie a couple years ago, one of the songs from the Lego movie is, everything is awesome. Everything is not always awesome. Nehemiah and the Israelites, they experienced this. You have experienced this. I have experienced this. But it leads us to the next characteristic of greatness. See, the growth of greatness is not immune to interruptions. The growth of greatness is not immune to interruptions. Having a three-year-old and a one-year-old in my house means that there are a billion interruptions every day. That's a statistical scientific fact. I'm not making that number up. And so I find the best time for me, if I want to have quiet time where I'm able to read my Bible and I'm able to spend a little bit of time praying just on my own with nothing around me, I find that the best time for me to do that is shortly after 5 a.m. Now, hold up. I'm not saying every morning at 5 a.m. I am getting up. But I'm saying when I am convicted and when I am challenged and when I believe that I'm trying to build this discipline in my life. I don't have it mastered yet. I'm not one of those people who's like, yeah, I got up at 5 a.m. to spend time with you. That's not what I'm trying to do here. But when I am able to drag myself out of bed and I'm able to get to the alarm in time and when I'm able to stumble towards the coffee maker and I brew myself a glorious, delicious, life-giving cup of coffee, and I'm able to stumble into the living room and I'm able to say, Okay, God, here I am at five eleven in the morning. I'm ready to have some <laughs> But when I'm when I'm able to do that, I feel like, okay, that's that's the time that works for me. And so Friday morning, this past week, I was like, you know what, I'm preaching. I need to be all spiritualed up for Sunday. So I need to do this. kind of joking. Nobody laughed there, but that's okay. So I get up at 5 a.m., and I'm really grouchy because one of our kids is teething, and the other kid is having accidents, and we're having to clean the sheets, and and they're coughing, and so I'm tired, and I'm not sleeping great. And so at 5 o'clock, I'm like, Lord, here I am to pray and read my Bible. And at about 5.14 a.m., just as I've begun my my intercessory prayer, (laughs) what do I hear from Jude's bedroom down the hall? (laughs) And immediately I'm saying, God, why is he doing this to me? And I go down the hall and I take him out of his crib and I start to tell Jude all the reasons why he's ruining this spiritual moment for me where I'm supposed to be connecting with my heavenly father so that I'm able to be a better earthly father to him. And I'm saying, Jude, you can't do this to me every, every morning. And I'm frustrated and I'm grouchy because this one-year-old is interrupting my time with God. And I felt like God convicted me in that moment. And he said, Thaddeus, I'm going to reward faithfulness. Sure, it's interrupted. Sure, it wasn't as long a time as you hoped. Maybe you weren't awake enough yet. But the very fact that I made a decision to try draw closer to Jesus, I just felt like he's saying, I'm going to reward your faithfulness. Whether it was three minutes of uninterrupted time or whether it's three hours Disclosure: I never have had three hours of uninterrupted prayer time as a father of, and or even before I had kids. So, but the fact of the matter is, there's interruptions when it comes to a life of greatness. Sam Ballot, Tobiah, Geshem—the guys that I mentioned at the beginning this morning—these three men were a thorn in the side of Nehemiah and the Israelites as they're trying to rebuild the walls. And they hear about the plans to stru- that they're going to start construction. And it says this in Nehemiah 2, verse 19. They scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? See, what we need to know is that Sambalat and Tobiah, they're both likely governors of surrounding regions. And so when Nehemiah shows up, and when he starts the process of rebuilding the walls, it interrupts their desires and their, their quests for greater power, for greater influence, for greatness. Because with Jerusalem compromised and in a vulnerable state, those guys are in a better position to occupy that power vacuum. And so they start to send interruptions. They send threats. They tried to trick Nehemiah. They tried to subvert the process any which way. They tried to go to a, the above authorities But Nehemiah, as he does eight times throughout the book named after him, rather than shrink back at the first sign of opposition, he simply prays to God for protection and success. And then in verse 14 of chapter 4, he gathers the people together and he encourages them by saying this. He says, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now, I don't know if you catch something, but when I read that, it it kind of stood out to me because if I were Nehemiah, if I were in his shoes, I would have probably said, remember the Lord and his incredible power. Remember his provisions that never run out. His strength is greater than those of our enemies. But Nehemiah doesn't say those things. He doesn't go through the list of all the things. He simply says, remember the Lord who is great and glorious. See, often we try to think about or we try to bring about all of the things that we think we need, all of the resources, things that we maybe don't have that we feel like we need to overcome the dissatisfaction, to, to lead to, to the bold steps, to, to grow in our greatness. And we think we need to have all of these things that maybe we don't have. And Nehemiah simply says, remember the Lord. Fix your eyes on him. Again, footnote in a study Bible. Great great stuff in there quote that i found but it says this accomplishing any large task is tiring there are always there is always pressure that fosters discouragement and the task seems impossible it can never be finished or there's too many factors working against us the only cure for fatigue and discouragement is focusing on god's purposes nehemiah reminded the workers of their calling their goal and god's protection And it says this, if you're overwhelmed by an assignment, tired and discouraged, remember God's purpose for your life and his special purpose for the project. Have you found yourself at times kind of at a good place with God and everything seems to be going smoothly and just at the moment where you say, you know, we have gone 917 days without any interruptions, suddenly something is thrown in your face. The enemy mounts an attack. Just when you think things are good, you wind up in another circumstance of great discomfort and frustration and pain. I want to remind you that the great life that we're called into and that you're invited into, the greatness that God is leading us towards, it will be interrupted. Maybe some of our least favorite words from Jesus, but words that actually hold an immense amount of comfort are found in John sixteen thirty-three. He says, I have told you all this. And, and all this, if you go back in chapter 16, he's been teaching the disciples about how he would be leaving soon, he'd be crucified, and that persecution would arise. However, they'd be encouraged because they wouldn't be alone, and that the Holy Spirit would dwell within them and empower them to overcome, like we sang about this morning. So he says, I've told you all this, So that you may have peace in me, here on earth you'll have many trials, many sorrows, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. See the growth of greatness; it's it's not immune to interruptions. But when we're able to recognize that who is leading us towards that greatness, who's walking alongside us in that greatness, we know that we have the ability to overcome. This brings us to the last characteristic of greatness we're going to look at this morning. See, the harvest of greatness is never in isolation. The harvest of greatness is never in isolation. Sure, Nehemiah spearheaded the rebuilding project, but he wasn't capable of tackling the task on his own. The entirety of chapter three in the book of Nehemiah just goes through families and lists of people who took on entire sections of rebuilding the wall. Jesus promises the comforter and the counselor and the advocate, his Holy Spirit, to dwell within you. So that when you get to a place where there's a harvest, there's a return of this life that you're living, this calling that you're walking in, maybe that's a a parent, maybe that's a job, maybe that's a teacher, maybe it's a supply manager, maybe it's an IT person, maybe it's a student right now. See, whatever you're called to, the Holy Spirit's partnering with you. You're not in isolation. You're not alone. And beyond that, look around this room. You're like, I don't know everybody really well here this morning. That's okay. There's others that you do know really well, but can I tell you something? That we are all in this together. There's a Disney movie, high school musical, from a couple years ago, and one of the songs is, we're all in this together. We're all in this together. The harvest of greatness, when, when one of us experiences victory in our lives, it trickles down. See, this is the body of Christ, the church. The harvest of greatness is never in isolation. Some have accused me of talking about sports too much. I'm sorry, I'm gonna talk about sports another time here. But my favorite hockey team is the Edmonton Oilers, and they are statistically the worst team in the NHL this year. To start the season though, they were Stanley Cup favorites. There was a lot of experts and analysis who were saying Edmonton is the team to watch this year. I think they are gonna win it all. They have two of arguably the best hockey players in the world, not like two, of the best. Some say that they're two of the best hockey players in the world right now and yet they are still in last place. And so every night, they won last night, which is amazing. It's only the third time they've won this year. But every night after the game in the post-game interviews, they're always saying the same things. They say, we aren't playing well enough. We keep making the same mistakes. We can't seem to figure things out right now. Now what I say next is going to be a little bit of prophetic anticipation, Okay. But next July, when the Edmonton Oilers raise the Stanley Cup above their heads, they turn their season around, the craziest turnaround. You know what the post-game interviews are gonna say then? They're gonna talk about how together we experienced dissatisfaction. Together, we rose to the occasion. Together, we overcame adversity. And ultimately together, they celebrate the victory. Sports is not important in the grand scheme of life. I get it, but I think it can actually teach us a lot. Obviously the Bible can teach us more. And so the story of Nehemiah, it shows us this. That the seed of greatness that God is calling you towards, not greatness for your own sake, not greatness so that you look incredible, or that other people will, will give you praise and honor and glory, and will shower compliments on you. No, but greatness in the understanding of the kingdom of heaven. That there's going to be moments of dissatisfaction that you run up against. So this morning, just as kind of some take-home things that you can do this week, I want you to spot your dissatisfaction. And you can do that in this moment here, but I also want you to do it throughout this week. We, We read about how Nehemiah stops, and he sits down, and he weeps, and he prays, and he mourns, and he fasts. So for you, spot the dissatisfaction. What are the areas in your life that you are experiencing it right now. Maybe there's like a face of somebody in your life that's coming to your mind. We're coming up to Thanksgiving and Christmas. Maybe it's a relative. You can pray about that later. Maybe it's a situation that's just weighing on you and it seems to be growing more complicated day after day after day. Maybe there's a a relational fracture. Maybe there's a, a spiritual health. Maybe there's a physical health situation. It could be anything, but I want you to spot the distraction or spot the dissatisfaction in your life. And I think it's actually important for us to sit in that tension sometimes, to sit in that dissatisfaction. I don't think it's safe to rest. We talked about that. I don't think it's safe to land or be stuck or stay there. But I think it's important that we acknowledge and recognize that it exists, not uh, dwell or stew in it, but spot the dissatisfaction. Then I want you to, to start bo- praying boldly. I want you to pray things that maybe you've stopped praying for. or pray for things that you're afraid to pray for. You know God, I know I know, I know I'm, I'm running through this situation and this circumstance and, and it's just getting worse and worse, but maybe there was something that you were praying at the beginning of this process that you've slowly stopped praying as it feels like the prayer wasn't being answered. Can I encourage you to start praying boldly again? To ask and see if God doesn't give you more? Then I want you to step out in faith. See, Nehemiah could have said, I'm I'm upset about the walls and I want to do something about it. And he could have told the king, Yeah, I wish something would happen. But Nehemiah actually steps out and he does it. Is there somebody this week that you need to pick up your phone and call and take a bold step? Is there a job that you find yourself in this week that you know you're not supposed to be in? Is there a job that you know you're supposed to pursue that God is saying, You know, I've have this job that I've been pushing you towards. Is there a, a school program that you need to revisit? Is there a property that you need to buy or sell? Is there a project that you've been pushing off that you know God is <clears throat> calling you to start tackling? Take a bold step of faith. But don't do it alone. I want you to stand in community. Bring people with you. Talk to me. Talk to the person in the row beside you. Send Pastor Tom an email. A couple weeks ago, um, Niso, who's up here running our live stream, shout out Niso, he sent me a text and he's like, hey, do you want to like get together and like just talk about spiritual things? He's like, I want to grow. Can we maybe do that together? How cool is that? I want you to stand in community this week. As a church, recently, you know, we've purchased this building downtown. And I'm not saying that it's like the walls of Nehemiah that he tackled and rebuilt. But man, we we got some rebuilding to do. I want to do it together. I want to do it with you, I want to do it with our community. Here on. So spot the dissatisfaction, start praying boldly, step out in faith, and then stand in community. Can you close your eyes? <clears throat> as we've been talking this morning, <clears throat> as I was thinking about our time together, I couldn't help but feel like. There's lives of greatness in the room and God's been calling you towards and you've been holding back and maybe it's one of you maybe it's 11 of you I I don't know but my question is this and I simply want you if if you if you agree with what I'm saying I just want you to put your hand up nobody's looking around but do you want God to use you to live a life of greatness You can put your hand up. If you want God to use you, say, yes, I want God to use me to live a life of greatness. Not greatness for myself, not greatness for for me, but greatness that will leave an impact. My hand's up. Second question is this. Are you scared to live a life of greatness? Again, my hand is up. It's scary, it's terrifying. Because on our own, we can't do it. But when we partner, and we walk alongside, and we surrender to God, He leads us towards greatness. He leads us into greatness. So would you stand with me as we close? God, I'm scared of living a life of greatness because I can't identify what it looks like because there's elements of that that are beyond my control. And if I'm honest, Holy Spirit, I sometimes like to be in control. And so in this moment, God, I wanna say that I'm gonna surrender to you. I'm gonna give you the dissatisfaction that I sometimes experience. God, I'm gonna come to you boldly and ask for your wisdom and for your grace, for your mercy and for your strength. And God, I pray that you would help me and that you would help us as we surrender ourselves and as we pray those crazy, bold, maybe on the outside looking foolish prayers. God, I pray that you would respond to those prayers with your faithfulness, with your provision. God, help us to remember that we're not doing this alone. Not only are we in community and in relationship with you, Holy Spirit, but we have this body of believers, this church community. And Lord, together we're standing here on Sunday, November 12th, and saying, God, we want our lives as individuals and our lives as a community to be great so that we can build your kingdom here in Huron as it is in heaven. So we love you, Jesus. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Just a reminder, empowered youth tonight, but no house of prayer. Can't wait to see you all next Sunday. Have a great rest of your day, everybody.